Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. It must take place, but the end for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious what you are to speak. Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, and brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, rise against parents, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, one who endures to the end. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, enter his house and take his things. Let not, and let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his things. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are in labor. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation has not been seen since the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the time, no human being would have lived. For the sake of the elect whom he chose. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets arise and perform signs in the way of apostles. But be on guard. I have told you all things before. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, the ends of the heavens. Big tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Concerning that day or that hour, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. 
Like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. Do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, lest he come suddenly. But I say to you, I say to all. Thank you, Ted, for reading this morning. Now, before we jump in, just want to say a quick word about uh, Kids Church that's starting up next Sunday. Parents, some of you might be just as excited for that as your kids are, uh, but that's starting up next Sunday, and so just want to give you a quick word of why we're doing this and what, we're, what the idea is behind this. The, whole, the, the main purpose that we wanted to do this is to, to, uh, to help teach our kids how to engage in the worship gathering, okay? So not just to, uh, you know, tie them down to a, to a seat and make sure that, you know, they, you know, we want to we teach them to engage. What does it look like for them to take part in the worship gathering? And so that's what we're going to do. So for basically every other month, we're going to have this kids' church. So starting next Sunday for the month of March, uh, the kids will be, the kids' kindergarten through sixth grade will be dismissed. We'll go over to the youth room during the preaching time, and we will... Uh, and we'll take some time there doing several different things, but probably the main thing we're going to be doing is uh, learning a, uh, a, something about the worship gathering. So like I think next week we're starting with adoration, you know, something we do in the worship gathering, some, some important component. So we'll talk about things like adoration, we'll talk about things uh, like singing, we'll talk about things like prayer, we'll talk about things like preaching and the Lord's Supper and baptism and community and all, all these things. We'll We'll talk about these things over the next many months, and then, and then the following month, we'll, uh, so, so the month of March, we'll do Kids Church, and then in April, we'll take a break from Kids Church, and during the month of April, uh, the kids will have a task that they're going to try to complete during that month, and so they'll be in the entire worship gathering during the month of April, and they'll have something to do during that, that month, and so we'll be, we'll be doing several other things as well, uh, but that is starting next week. If you have any questions about that, you're welcome to come. Uh, talk to me or my wife Shannon, and we love to um, answer any things like that. That's starting starting next week. Well, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we jump in here this morning? God, we do thank you as we sang earlier that there will be a day when all will bow before you. Thank you that the frustrations, the pain, the suffering, the persecutions that we see and that we face are not the end, but there's more to the story. Thank you that you will return, and we long for that day. We look for that day. We pray this morning that we would be encouraged and comforted by the fact that you will come again, and that we would also be uh, exhorted and convicted to live in reality, in that reality that you will come again. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our minds to understand your word this morning and to hold fast to it with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, this morning, uh, this morning I'd like to start with something maybe a little abnormal. Uh, this morning, I am going to predict 
the exact date of the return of Christ. No, I'm just kidding. I can't, I can't, I can't, even, I can't even say that with a straight face. No, I, um, Jesus didn't know. So. Uh, some of you are like, how did that guy get ordained last week? <laughs> um, no, I'm not going to predict uh, the second coming. Uh, but, but if I did, I wouldn't be the first to try to predict the date. There have been many. I mean, do you guys remember a guy named Harold Camping? Anybody remember that name? Harold Camping. Uh, Jesus is coming, and it's going to happen in 1994. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. Jesus is coming on May 21st, 2011. Well, no, sorry, I uh, got my math wrong. Okay, actually, it's going to be October 21st, 2011. <laughs> I mean, how many, I, I've, heard, I've read that he pre- tried to predict the end of time about 12 times. <laughs> I'm like, after, how, I mean, how many times do you have to try to predict the end and it doesn't happen before no one listens? <laughs> I don't know, but he wasn't the first and he probably won't be the last. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Montanus in the second century And he predicted that Christ would return on a certain day. And he even predicted where Christ was going to return. And and villages were vacated as people in droves flocked to this place where he said Jesus was going to return. And I can only imagine what the conversations were like on the way home. (laughs) Like, uh, you didn't cancel your your, your home insurance, did you? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But there have been many predictions, many predictions, and there will likely be many more to come. And I just have to ask the question, like, is, I mean, is that the purpose of a passage like Mark 13? I mean, is Mark 13 supposed to give us all these tools to figure out when Christ is coming back? I mean, clearly, the answer is no. I mean, Jesus said he doesn't even know. So what's the point then? What is, what's the point of most prophetic literature? And what's the point specifically here of Mark chapter 13? And we're going to get there. Let's kind of think through some of the details of this text here. So in our text this morning, we find Jesus, and it says, as he came out of the temple. And so uh, he entered the temple back in Mark chapter 11, and he didn't enter it to make friends. When Jesus entered the temple, he cleared it out. I mean, he made no little disturbance in the temple. And his authority had been sharply challenged ever since. The whole, the whole, all of chapter 12 is about Jesus' authority being challenged. And so now he's leaving the temple, and you kind of get the sense that when Mark says he came out of the temple, he's more than just saying what Jesus did next. I mean, it seems like Mark is trying to indicate that Jesus is done with the temple. Because the temple had become a place of opposition to God when it was supposed to be a place of connection with God. But as Jesus leaves the temple, one of his disciples, we don't know which one, makes a comment about the magnificence of the temple. You can kind of picture like, you know, you know a kid, your kid's walking with you and, and they're, you know, they have no idea what's in front of them. They're like, wow. And that's kind of like his disciple. And he's like, he's like, wow, Jesus, did you see this? And you're like, first of all, were you not listening to like, you know, all this stuff that Jesus was just saying? Um, but if you were there, you probably would have made the same comment too. I mean, because this was, this was Herod's temple, Herod the Great. Hey, do you remember uh, several weeks ago when Pastor Wood was describing 
how Herod had moved an entire mountain. I mean, he, he had all his troops, you know, pick up this dirt and put it over there. Until he, he, they built an actual mountain so that he could put this really tall building that could be seen from anywhere. Okay, this is the same Herod that built this temple. And his temple was a sight to behold. I mean, it was magnificent. Uh, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian in the early church. He described uh, this temple. He described some of the stones that were used to build just, I mean, even just the retaining wall for the temple. And he said that some of them were as long as 37 feet by 12 feet high and 18 feet deep, probably weighing over a million pounds. I mean, that's a big rock. (laughs) And that's just the retaining wall. I mean, the Temple Mount was somewhere around 35 acres. I mean, it could could accommodate as many as 12 football fields. I don't think they were playing football back then, but they could have. (laughs) 12 12 different games going on at once. But the thickness, there there are these... these, uh, in, in one section of this temple complex, there is this portico that was made up of these huge columns. And they were, I don't know, they were like four columns wide by, by just many deep. And these columns, Josephus said, that the thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching one another to envelop just one column. And so this was magnificent. This was a massive structure. And so you could see why the disciples, as they're passing through it, and they're just like, wow. You could see why they'd be enchanted by the the structure of this temple. But Jesus responds to his disciples by prophesying that the temple they were looking at would one day be obliterated, completely destroyed. Now, this was a big deal. And the disciples wanted to know more about it. And so four of his disciples, you know, as they make their trek over to the Mount of Olives, which you could see the temple from the Mount of Olives, and so as they make their trek, once they they finally get over there to the Mount of Olives, four of the disciples, actually the first four that Jesus called, uh, came to Jesus and they asked him, they wanted to know more about this. They wanted to see what was going on. And so they asked him some questions about this. Now, they knew their Old Testaments, And they knew that the destruction of the temple and judgment on Jerusalem had an end times ring to it. And so they asked him these two questions in verse 4. Look at at verse 4 again. They ask him these two questions. They say, tell us, when will these things be? Number one. Number two, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so they ask him these two questions, and in response to their question, Jesus launches into the longest teaching section in the entire book of Mark. And so I just feel that in order to reflect the text appropriately, this should be the longest sermon in our series in Mark. No, just kidding. Uh, But before we jump in, before we jump in here, um, I do want to make just a few comments on this chapter as a whole. I think there's some helpful things. This is probably the hardest text, in the passage in Mark, to interpret. There are many opinions on what different things mean in this chapter. 
Uh, last week, during my ordination uh, questioning by the council, uh, somehow it came up that I was preaching this passage, and I, I told them that, <laughs> that the questioning last week was like cake compared to preaching this text this week. <laughs> and I was only half joking, because in one sense, it's one thing, sitting in front of a bunch of pastors and trying to explain how I see scripture fitting together, it's much easier than standing in front of you all and declaring, this is what God says. There's a weight to that. And so all that to say that this is a difficult passage to interpret, to understand. And because of that, I'd like to start by giving you just some thoughts that might help direct us as we look at Mark chapter 13. So first, it's important to note that Jesus is answering the, question, the disciples' questions about his prophecy about the destruction of the temple. That's the context of this chapter. So Jesus prophesies about the temple. It's going to be destroyed. They ask him questions about that destruction, and so he responds to them. And so I think it's, it's logical, to, to, it's reasonable to believe that Jesus has in mind, at least in part, the destruction of the temple as he describes the things that he does here in Mark chapter 13. And I think this makes sense when we come to verse 30, and Jesus says, he says this, he says, truly I say to you, this generation, in other words, some of you that are standing here, will not pass away until all these things take place. So at least part of what Jesus is talking about in this chapter seems to point to the destruction of the temple that he prophesied, and that we know actually did happen in A.D. 70. The Romans, they did this in A.D. 70. They completely destroyed the temple. And so it seems like Jesus is at least in part talking about the destruction of the temple. But, however, there are several indications in this chapter that he's not only talking about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Let me just show you a few of these. In verse 4, the disciples' second question is, what will be the sign when all these things are about to come? They're about to be accomplished. I mean, you just, you just kind of get the sense that they have something else in mind here, that they understand Jesus is talking about something more than just when is the temple going to be destroyed. They seem to be connecting these dots here. And Matthew actually records this second question. Listen to how, this is how Matthew records their, this second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That's how Matthew lists the question in Matthew 24. Okay? But then, in verse 14, Jesus refers to this abomination of desolation. And that's a clear reference to some prophecies that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter 9. Some clear prophecies there. And those are end times prophecies. And then in verse 19 and 20, Jesus describes a time of tribulation, and he describes it this way. As has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. That sounds like a little bit more than just the destruction of the temple. And then Jesus points to the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds in verse 26 and 27. Another prophecy from Daniel. And so it seems that while Jesus is talking about, in some ways, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it seems that he also has in mind a bigger picture. Something that the, that the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was actually pointing to. 
something that would happen in the end times. Now, you might be thinking, so what? what why does it matter what Jesus was referring to? And that's a good question to be asking. Now, many evangelical theologians, if this is like boring to you, that's okay, you can go to sleep, and I'll wake you up in just a second. Uh, but many, many evangelical theologians recognize in Mark 13 both a reference to the temple that, that was destroyed in AD 70 and some end times events. They recognize both. They say, we read it in Mark 13, some of these things point to the destruction of the temple, some of these things point to uh, the end times. Many evangelical theologians see both in this chapter. But there's a lot of disagreement about which parts refer to which event. Okay? So is Jesus describing here something that happened in the past or the future, or at what point is he, is he referring to which? And so the question is, is Jesus describing here the great tribulation that lasts for seven years and takes place right before he comes back to set up his millennial kingdom. Right? That's, that's kind of the question that we have in our minds. Now, before we answer that question, I'd like to mention something that I think is very important. It is really important, vitally important, for preachers Anyone who preaches God's word, who says this is what God says, it's important for us to distinguish between what is absolutely clear in Scripture and what is less clear. It's important to distinguish between what we absolutely know and what we think. And there's a big difference between something like this is my best understanding, this is my best interpretation of how this scripture fits in with other scriptures. There's a big difference between that and thus says the Lord. There's a difference. And so this morning, I'm going to try to be very clear about what is my opinion or how I understand things to fit together in scripture and also how our church understands things to fit together in scripture according to our articles of faith. But I want to be clear about what is my opinion or what we think and what is clear from this text. What every single Christian from any Christian faith tradition would agree on in this text. And so let me just give you a quick overview of our church's articles of faith when it comes to this topic because it addresses this topic. I mean, Matthew 24, which is the parallel passage, is, is specifically listed in our Articles of Faith. So let me just give you a quick overview here. Our church Articles of Faith teach, when it comes to end times, te we teach that the rapture of the church, the, the catching up of the church, which could happen at any time, is followed by a seven-year tribulation period, which has all kinds of events that, that take place in there. And that seven-year tribulation period is followed by the second coming of Christ. We actually will come all the way to the earth. And after that, there will be a literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. So that's what our church articles of faith say. This is what we say we, we hold to. And so let me, uh, based on those articles of faith, our church 
would understand Mark 13, generally, to fit somewhere with that tribulation period culminating in the second coming of Christ in power. That's what our church articles of faith would say. Okay? Now, let me see if I can quickly give you my opinion on how Mark 13 fits with, that, with those articles of faith. So this is my opinion on how I think that this chapter fits with what our church believes. I believe that Jesus describe, that what Jesus describes in Mark 13 is a pattern. There's a pattern of opposition against God and a pattern of God's intervention in response to that opposition. Okay? Pattern of opposition, a pattern of God's in- intervention in response to opposition against him. So it's a pattern. And this pattern is pictured in what happened to the temple in A.D. 70. Opposition against God, God's intervention. It's pictured there. But the pattern finds its ultimate culmination in, or the pattern points to, the picture of the temple points to something else. It points to a final display of opposition that's going to take place during the tribulation period. And that will prompt the return of Christ at the end of the age. And so here's what I believe. I believe that in some ways, Jesus refers in in this passage both to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and to a coming period of tribulation and the ultimate return of Christ. But let me say this, and if you went to sleep, this is when you can, you know, awake, all right? Wake back up. Okay, and this is when we start to get into what is clear from this text, as opposed to what our, our belief is, what our opinion is, what our best uh, interpretation of Scripture is. This is clear. The reason Mark 13 is in your Bibles, okay, why is it in here? The reason is not so that you can fill out all your blanks in your eschatology timeline of events. That's not why Mark 13 is in your Bible. Jesus is not intending to inform you the timing of the end times events. And he just said he doesn't even know. So the purpose of Mark 13 is not to give you ammunition in your eschatology debates. Instead, Mark 13 is in your Bibles to give you courage and comfort. Here's what I believe is the point of Mark 13. I'm just going to give you right up front. Though opposition will increase and persecution is inevitable, God will bring final judgment. And so stay awake. That's the point of Mark chapter 13. And so with all this in mind, I'd like you to see this morning four quick things here in Mark chapter 13. Historical progression, sovereign intervention, unknown intermission, and pastoral admonition. Now, uh, some of you are a little bit nervous right now. You're like, Jordan, that was a very long introduction. 
Normally you have three points, but today you have four. <laughs> the, the Methodists and Lutherans are certainly going to beat us to Culver's today. <laughs> we have no hope. <clears throat> um, but don't worry, we're going to go through these very quickly. We're going to go through these very quickly. Okay? So first, historical progression. I want you to see here, historical progression. I think one thing we can take away from Mark chapter 13 is that history is going somewhere. I mean, when the disciples ask their question, Jesus responds by explaining patterns that will take place in history and admonitions to be on guard because of those patterns. Okay, so look at verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus starts by saying this, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. In the Greek there, the, the I am he is simply ego eimi, or I am. Does that sound familiar? This is how God himself describes himself in scripture. And so I think what we find is that people are going to uh, claim the place of God. They're going to make claims of authority that rightfully belongs to God. They're going to make claims and they're going to demand that those claims be followed as if they were from God himself. Does that sound familiar in our age? But he also says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and famines. Does that sound familiar? Okay. But Jesus says in verse 7, look at verse 7. He says, uh, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Then at the end of verse 8, he says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. <clears throat> in other words, this is a pattern that is rolling out in history, but it doesn't mean that the end is yet. Keep watching, he says. But it gets worse because there's going to be persecution. That's what we read about in verses 9 through 13. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, but one of the chief ways it will be proclaimed is through persecution. I mean, this is going to go so deep that it will cut through family lines. Sobering. In some cases, even family members will hate and betray you because you follow Jesus. But it keeps getting worse. In verse 14, we looked at this earlier, Jesus says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the way abomination of desolation is constructed there in the Greek, it indicates that this is not just an event but a person who is going to commit some act that is so egregiously in God's face that it provokes the final return of Christ. And I believe, and, I, and our church articles of faith teach, that this is the man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, but the result of this abomination is a time of tribulation. Okay, look at verse 19. We read it earlier. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. I mean, this is intense. This is a time of unprecedented terror. This is a time, like it says in the next verse there, where false, or in verse 22, where false Christs, literally, pseudo-Christs, Pseudo-Christos will seek to lead people astray. They will perform signs and wonders, things that make people think that these fakes should be followed. 
They're going to be convincing. Now, before we move on to the next point, let's remember that what Jesus is describing here is a pattern. It is a pattern that was pictured in the early church in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It's a pattern that continues through the church age, and it's a pattern that finds its ultimate fulfillment in a tribulation period before the coming of Christ. But here's what this means for us in 2024. We live in a time that in many ways is characterized by all these things. There are wars and rumors of wars, are there not? There are earthquakes and famines. There is and will be persecution for our faith. There are those who despise our Lord Jesus. There are false Christs who make claims about what you should believe, and they demand that you believe them. And they label you if you don't believe them, or they cancel you. What Jesus is describing here is not foreign to us. It's not just about what is to come in the future. We experience some of this now. And what you and I need to know and be reminded of again and again and again is that, yes, things are getting worse. Yes, opposition is getting thicker and thicker. Yes, persecution is inevitable. But history is pointing to something. History is going somewhere. And things are going to continue to get worse and there's, until there's a cataclysmic disaster, but it won't be forever. For the entire course of history, people will oppose God, but it won't last forever. Someday, God will bring it all to an end. Someday, God will intervene. Notice sovereign intervention. In verses 24 to 27, we read about a thunderous response of the sovereign Lord. God will intervene. I'd like to just read this section again because this is important. Verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heavens, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and authority. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. And so I have tried to explain to you in my, what, what my and our church's best understanding of, of this and how this all fits together. But here's what is clear. Here's what is clear to all Christians. Jesus is coming back. You cannot be a Christian and deny that fact. Jesus will return and he will judge and that's the picture of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and authority or and glory. I want to read to you uh, where this comes from in Daniel chapter 7. I mean, Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7. Let me read to you this. I saw, verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be 
destroyed. There is coming a day when Jesus will reign with all authority, completely and finally, over all people. He is the sovereign king. There will be opposition, but they don't have the final say. There will be those who do terrible injustice, but they don't pronounce the final verdict. There will be those who demand your allegiance and obedience to their anti-God claims, but there will be a day when all will bow before him. And every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith that we sang through doubt and through fear, in the end, we will see that it was worth it when he returns and wipes all tears away. And on that day, we will join the resurrection, and with one voice, a thousand generations will declare for all of eternity and sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Forever he will reign, because he alone is sovereign. There is coming a day when Jesus will reign completely and finally. And don't you long for that day. Jesus is coming back. And that's where our hope is. So there's historical progression. And there's sovereign intervention. But I want you to notice an unknown intermission. In other words, we don't know how long it will be between the time that Jesus said these words in Mark chapter 13 and when he will actually return. We don't know. There are some indications for some things. I think it's the point of the parable of the fig tree here in verses 28 to 31. The fig tree starts putting out its branches. It starts actually leafing, leafing, however you say that, starts doing its thing uh, right before it gets nice and warm in the summer. So there's some indication there. And so Jesus says that in a similar, similar way, when you see some of these things taking place, you know the end is near. And at this point, I think he's referring to mostly to the parts of his teaching that refer to the destruction of the temple. Because he says in verse 30, he says, Some here, he says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, some people that Jesus were, were, were that Jesus was talking to were going to witness the destruction of the temple, and some of them did. So there were some indicators that Jesus was describing so that the disciples would know when the temple was soon to be destroyed. And similarly, there are some indications that the end of time is near when you see certain things happening, like the abomination of desolation described in Daniel chapter 9, which is an end times event tribulation event. When those things happen, you know that the second coming is near. But there's an unmistakable fact in Mark chapter 13, and that's this. No one knows when Jesus will return. No one knows. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
I mean, Jesus himself declares that he doesn't even know when this is going to happen. Now, this should not be taking, taken as a statement that disproves the fact that Jesus is God. Some critics will point to this. Oh, Jesus didn't know, so he's not God. Well, that's not at all what is meant by the Son doesn't even know. When Jesus, who is eternal God, became a human, he emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. And he emptied himself by adding human form. In other words, he willingly took on the limitations of what it means to be human in his incarnation. For instance, Jesus could not be in more than one place at a time. He couldn't be in two places. God is omnipresent, but Jesus could not be in two places at once. A human, I mean, he, he limited himself willingly to what it means to be a human. This doesn't make him any less God, but it does demonstrate for us the sort of dependence on the Father that all followers of Christ should emulate. But here's the point. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And we are not meant to know when Jesus is coming back. We are simply meant to know that Jesus is coming back. He could come back at any time. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. In other words, there is nothing else that we are waiting for to happen to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. It could be any moment. It'd be great if it was right now. So what, is all, what does all this mean for you and me? And I think this is the point of Mark 13. Remember, Mark 13 is not in your Bible so that you can fill out an eschatology timeline of events with great confidence. I mean, Jesus just doesn't give clear information on the timeline of events. Instead, all throughout Mark 13, he gives pastoral admonitions. Okay, let me just point these out to you in the text. There are several of these all throughout the chapter. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 11, do not be anxious. Uh, Verse 21, do not believe it. Verse 23, be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard and stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, the the, the final words of the chapter, stay awake. Okay, so you can see, are you picking up a pattern here? I mean, if history is progressing to a climax... If Jesus will one day return sovereignly to intervene, but if we don't know when that's going to happen, then what does this mean for you and for me on February 25th, 2024? What does this mean for us? And I think we can boil down Jesus's, these several admonitions here to two specific admonitions. Don't be led astray and be on your guard. So first, don't be led astray. I think one thing Jesus is teaching is that we should not get lost trying to connect lines between current events and prophetic literature in Scripture. It does you no eternal good to try to figure out what events have already been fulfilled, how close we might actually be, who is the Antichrist, or how an era of war, nuclear holocaust, 
famines, ecological and economic disasters in our day might mean that Jesus is about to return. That's fun, (laughs) but it does you no spiritual and eternal good. When Jesus returns, consider this fact, when Jesus returns, he is not going to ask you, did you get your eschatology right? He's not going to ask you, were you able to figure out the timing before I came back? He's not going to ask you that. Do you know what he's going to ask you? Did you watch carefully? How did you live in light of the fact that I was coming back? And so don't be led astray. And there are many other ways that we could look at to not be led astray here. And I would encourage you to go back through this chapter, think through, what does Jesus mean when he says, don't be led astray? But for sake of time, we're going to go to the second one. Be on your guard or stay awake. And so I just like to conclude that being woke was cool long before our time, but in a much different way, a much different way. Okay, what does this mean? What does it mean for you to stay awake? I mean, this is really broad in general, stay awake. What does this mean? Well, for some of you, it might mean putting your faith and trust in Jesus, because he will come back. Are you ready for him to come back? If you do not turn to him and believe, then when he returns, you will be among those who find themselves in opposition to God. And that is not a pretty place to be, as we see in Mark 13. So has God been working in you? Has he been leading you to an understanding of who he is? Has he been leading you to an understanding of who you are and your sin? Are you beginning to understand that you are a sinner deserving God's punishment, but that Jesus gave his life for you? so that you wouldn't have to be punished, so that you could be like those that he, he gathers from the four ends of the earth to be with him forever. Are you ready? Because he will return. For others, this might mean something a little different. Again, Jesus leaves this very open-ended. And I think one way we might understand what it looks like to stay awake right now is to ask this question. If you knew, if you did know that Jesus was going to return tomorrow, what would you do this afternoon? What would you do differently this afternoon than you would have done before? If you knew that Jesus was going to return at this time next week, At 11.37 next week, March 3rd, 2024, if you knew he was going to return in one week, what would this week look like for you? If you knew that Jesus was going to return on July 22nd, 2024, random date, then what would you do differently between now and then? Because that might give you, your answer to that question might give you some understanding of what it looks like for you to stay awake. This might also look like trying to fit, uh, trying not, not, not trying to just fit Jesus into your schedule. You know, someone who's not looking for the return of Christ says things like this. I'll get to church when I can. 
I'll share the gospel with that friend when I get around to it. I'll quit that pattern of sin eventually. I got time. I'll give a little money to, to God's kingdom work if I have some extra at the end of the month. Okay, someone who's on guard is not trying to fit Jesus into the rest of what you have going on. Someone who's on guard is orienting their entire life around Jesus. And so what does that look like for you? And I'm intentionally leaving this very open-ended because I want you to think about what does it look like for me to orient my entire life around Jesus? I'm going to close with this story. It's a story that H.B. Charles, a modern-day preacher, tells. Gives this story. A car accident happened in the middle of the night, miles and miles away from anywhere. Two cars sat crumbled on the side of the road. And five people lay on the highway in various states of disrepair. The youngest one, limped to a payphone about a hundred yards away. When he returned, he announced that the ambulance was coming soon. A businessman did not believe that the ambulance would come, and he tried to walk to the nearest town. Two elderly brothers argued about the details of the ambulance, uh, the ambulance driver's promise. A woman determined she could not be seen in the condition and needed, uh, needed to repair her dress before the ambulance arrived. When the driver arrived, only the young man remained. And once he was safe inside, the young man said, This is a small ambulance. You couldn't get many people in here. That's true, said the driver. But then, there weren't many people left waiting for me, were there? Are you watching and waiting for the return of Christ? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you will return. That there will be a day when all will bow before you. As we face trials and suffering and persecution... Would you cause this truth to be a balm to us that comforts us to know that this won't be forever? And Lord, in our various areas, and we all have them, of our spiritual laziness, would you awaken us again to the reality that you will return and we don't know when? There are people who are dying and will die for all of eternity. So awaken us to this reality so that we would be on guard and work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.